Hello there, this is Marissa Schaefer from Dancewell Podcast, and on this episode, Pathologizing Movement and Coaching Variety, I speak with Dan Vandenacker, a Dutch physical therapist who is based in Hamburg. Dan's a former ballet dancer in Hamburg, and he got into physiotherapy after suffering several injuries during his professional career. He was trained as a physical therapist in Amsterdam, and he also started a master's in science and epidemiology while simultaneously beginning to work as a physical therapist for the Hamburg Ballet. Dan also has a keen interest in dance therapy and training, pain, and data analysis. So Dan brought up a very interesting topic for this episode, which I've been calling pathologizing movement. In this episode, we discuss the idea of creating good versus bad movement, coaching movement variety, and creating independent dancers and movers. He brings up some ideas that frankly make me a little uncomfortable, um, in part because I don't yet have a fully formed opinion on the matter and am in the process of creating my own ways of working with these concepts, and truthfully, because I think some of them are a little edgy, which is pretty cool. So in this conversation with Dan, um, he certainly gave me something to chew on. He brings up some really excellent points in the episode, and I hope you find it as interesting and as I did. Enjoy. Buckle your seatbelts. On this episode, Nutrition, Life Coach, Dance and Performance, Psychological Development, and today you are in for treat. Hi. Hello. This is Ellie Kushner. And this is Marissa Schaefer from, from Dancewell Dance Podcast. Podcast. Dancewell Podcast. Hello, this is Marissa Schaefer, and I'm here with Dancewell Podcast, and welcome Dan from the Netherlands, <laughs> but who's currently residing in Germany. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Marissa. Very nice of, uh, of you to have me. Dan and I are going to talk a little bit about movement. Um, he is a physical therapist, as I mentioned in the introduction. Um, so, Dan, let's start. On the phone, we discussed this idea of good movement versus bad movement. If you, you're not with me, but I'm using air quotes for good movement versus bad movement. Um, at what point do we cross this line and become too restrictive in our coaching and create an idea of, of bad movement? Um, I think that's a good question, and there are multiple layers to that, I think. Um, it all depends. I think essentially we'd be too restrictive if we do not take the individual into account. Um, I want to make clear that bad movement is relative, and you could even go as far as um, saying that bad movement in itself doesn't exist only in relationship to the, the person in front of us. Um, so is this movement bad for this person or for what they want to achieve? Um, an example is, um, let's say, I wouldn't let the next person on the street take a ballet class. And it's not because ballet has all these bad movements, but most likely because this person is not ready to perform these movements. Um, and I think that's a good way to think about it, because we should never vilify any movement. I think we also become too restrictive um, as soon as you draw conclusions solely from alignment or um, things like that. We have to ask ourselves the question, has he or she always moved like this? Um, the body is highly adaptable. Why is there a problem only now? Why are they coming to us now? Um, and are we also certain that the so-called bad movement actually contributes to the clinical presentation? Um, and therefore, should we really attempt to change it right now? So going back to what you first said regarding like 
movement being bad for the person. So you wouldn't take someone coming off the street and give them a ballet class. So it sounds to me like that is a, um, a need on, on our part as physical therapists to gradually progress someone and make sure that we are giving them movement that is specific to the task, but is gradated to where they are in terms of their, their recovery or in terms of their coaching and their, their readiness to move in that pattern. Absolutely. And that's, that's the, the other side of it. We're talking about movement control, which is uh, how well do you control the particular movement. So it's not the, the movement that is either good or bad. It's how you perform it uh, that can be interpreted as good or bad. Mm-hmm. And is that going into the point where you said we can't just look solely at alignment? Exactly. We're, we're, I think that goes back to adaptation. If I always uh, have a slight valgus when I uh, land, so that means um, my knees go slightly inwards. Right. Doesn't necessarily mean that I don't have the control to keep them outwards. We should test for that. Right. And at the same time, by continuously loading that inside of the knees, which happens when your knees come together, mm-hmm. they also gradually become stronger, they adapt. So if I were to say to a dancer, never do that again, am I taking them away from their strongest position or not? That's a, an, an interesting question, I find. So you're saying that they're going into a little bit of valgus, their body has actually adapted to that potentially, and so that is where they are most strong? Yes, especially if they always perform it like that. Mm-hmm. They've been practicing it exactly like that. Um, so I think we should tread lightly in, in saying, oh, that's bad, um, because it depends. It's true. I mean, the, several things come up for me here, right? So it's like, if they can control that, that's to their benefit. If it's uncontrolled, meaning that they go in and out of it without... Um, how do I want to put it? If they, if they can't control it, so they go in and out of it and their knees are wobbly, say, when they land a jump, as opposed yeah. to controlling it through the valgus, so through the knee going uh, inside of the toe, right? Um, but then again, if we go through to our kind of biomechanical model, right, of if they, they use this valgus position all of the time, then that potentially might create increased stress on the inside of the knee, do we want to help them to change their control so that they track with their knee a little bit more over their second toe if their anatomy allows for that? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good discussion. Um, and again, it depends on the individual. Mm-hmm. Of course, I agree with you, you should have the control in as many uh, possible positions or ranges of movement. Um, that's always good and better. but. Um, you mentioned stress on the inside of your knees. Um, you also stress your muscles to get stronger. Mm-hmm. Why not stress the inside of your knees to get stronger? Um, it's not necessarily such a bad thing. And I think the, the, the literature sort of points toward that as well, that the connection between uh, biomechanics and pain or injury is not um, that clear. It more has to do with load management. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really interesting point. 
So really the differentiator is, again, can you control the movement in that mild valgus or is it uncontrolled? And control being better. Yes. And um, again, of essence is let's look at this person in front of us mm-hmm. um, and see where, because most likely they come to us uh, because they have a complaint. Mm-hmm. Okay, where is this coming from? If they've always moved a certain way, why now? Right. Right. Um, and I, f- I find that maybe other factors are um, easier to influence or uh, more relevant because they changed, but their bi- biomechanics have been the same the for same the whole time. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Is it load? Is it nutrition? Is it mental stress? Is it, you know, gosh. Sleep. Sleep, right. The floor they're on. I don't know. The shoes they're in. Mm. Um, so... Okay, let's go back to this idea of like movement being just so. What do you think are the potential consequences of instilling this idea that movement has to be just so, or else, for example, increase your risk for injury? Yes. Um, so if I tell you, if you don't do this, you'll get injured. Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like I'm trying to instill a bit of fear. You yeah. know, well, in, well intended, but. Um, a bit, a bit like um, how do you call that? Uh, negative reinforcement. Yeah. Um, but what if a choreographer wants to see it differently, or um, what does a dancer do then? They say, "I cannot do that because my physiotherapist told me not to move like that." Sure. Or should should we should we help dancers to prepare the best they can because they can safely? I think. Yeah. Um, and again, injuries do not happen because of only one factor anyway. Right. Um, so the consequence um, of saying something like that, it changes the, the, the dancer and how they move. And I don't know if that's a good thing. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. I think this idea of like, I think of it as pathologizing movement um, is not great, especially since we have to move in a variety of different ways. I think the best thing that we can do is helping the dancer um, with a whole bunch, like helping the dancer be capable of making a whole bunch of movement choices um, as opposed to moving in this restricted pattern, which again creates that fear avoidance, Um, which in my opinion, again, if you take away the choices um, and the ways that they can move um, could potentially increase their risk for, um, for becoming injured. That's an anecdotal thing. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it makes sense theoretically. If you always move the same way, you also load your tissues in exactly the same way. Right. And that might, might this is also uh, just uh, an idea, right. it might overload tissues easier. Sure. Um, but again, um, the most skilled athletes actually have uh, the, the highest uh, variety in their movement patterns, um, as far as I understand mm-hmm. the, the research. Yeah. Um, and that sort of implies that we should aim for that variety. We should aim for different kind of things. Absolutely. I and on the other... On the other side of the spectrum, um, which kind of pulls it together, 
if you look at um, people with persistent low back pain, yeah. um, they actually show that they have um, a lot um, lower variability in their movement patterns. Right. If you compare it to healthy people, they move more and more the same the same way mm -hmm. so of course you cannot say is that because of the pain or is that uh, you know we cannot uh, we cannot say uh, what came Chicken first the egg, right yes exactly but it seems that we could say that variety of movement is actually a good thing absolutely um so along the same lines you spoke to this idea of overcorrecting or overcoaching someone's movement um mm -hmm. what what's the consequence of doing that i think um, might be very similar mm -hmm. um, because I think overcorrecting changes um, the way someone moves. Yeah. Um, and of course, this depends on the setting. If we are um, in a rehabilitation setting, we're talking to a patient or to a dancer, um, and we're we're correcting their movement. If we overcorrect, um, it kind of defies the purpose of rehabilitation because we want to build back trust into the body focus on the positive things and uh, not you know tell people not to do that and not to do that and depends again on the individual but people might respond um, very restrictive they'll start moving differently mm -hmm. they'll start to be a bit fearful and that's the opposite of what we want to reach mm -hmm. Um, and again, the body is very smart. I think uh, by repetition, it starts to figure things out by itself almost. Mm -hmm. um, as a clinician, you don't want to interfere too much with the natural process of, of learning a movement or improving a movement. So then would you kind of be in favor of giving them guidelines in terms of, you know, this is this is generally how we want you to control your movement. This is generally what we want this to look like. Or how would you kind of treat, how would you coach um, giving them the, the most options for their movement? Good question. Um, I think one part of it is language. Um, if they can move a certain way, they can control it or they can learn how to control it. Sure. Um, so I would try to interfere as little as possible. Let's say we do a certain strengthening exercise. Um, you show it, now you do it, observe, and see what happens and work from there. Mm -hmm. um, um, and I think the, the danger lies there when you say certain things and the dancer takes that with them into their work. They, they might start dancing cautiously or they start thinking about the mechanics or what muscle to tense or where to relax or um, yeah there's a certain risk to that mm -hmm. um, of course depends again on the dancer but you don't want to create um, a robot that does steps right. it's about uh, it's, it's still about the art and I think overcorrecting movement almost uh, beats the soul out of the art. Mm -hmm. It's about individual expression. And I don't think we should, I think we should never forget that, that we're not, you know, here to redefine um, how to move, but to serve the art in, in, a, 
the best we can. Oh, that is a really good point. I think like some, I was thinking about the whole language aspect. I, there's, I, I think we need to be careful about how we use no and don't and, um, and also this is good or no, that's bad or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, to, yeah, I agree. to make sure, yeah, we don't create these automatons. I mean, the other thing too, is I think we need to be careful not to be too reductionist. You just mentioned this, like which muscle is tightening, you know, which muscle is doing this work. It's not one thing, right? It's like such a consortium of things. We need to be careful of how, how we word it, right? So that we're looking at the gestalt at the end of the day. Yeah, it's good. I think, uh, you know, we shouldn't underestimate the dancer. They're smart. They know their bodies. They can interpret different sensations and they can, uh, they can um, say this is good or this is bad. But I, I agree. Um, and most of our language is always well intended, but be careful to not uh, cringe when someone um, you know, does that valgus when they land? Right. Because because you don't know how this person will take it. I mean, and and additionally too, right? I think we can't ignore anatomy as well, because even if we are looking, like, let's say we are looking for this perfect like line of hip knee and sexo are in a perfect line, but what if someone has a lot of tibial ex like tor torsion, right? And by doing that is actually not good for their bodies as well. So we're, I mean, I know I'm straying away from your original point, which is like, you know, maybe it's actually okay if people go into a controlled amount of knee valgus. Um, but maybe that's not actually, like having them in a perfect alignment is not good for what their body is built for. Is that yeah, well, sense? yeah, absolutely. You see that, uh, I think, in... Uh, a lot of dancers, because some bodies are better, better suited to the technique than others, mm -hmm. and they often uh, experience less injuries. Yeah. Yes. So, of course, we should never discount that there is a, an influence of, of uh, anatomy, of biomechanics, but it's never the whole story. Never the whole story. That's right. And uh, another nice example, um, about you know limiting the freedom of a dancer by uh, saying you can do this you cannot do that is um, uh, it doesn't really I think and it's more of a personal opinion um, when a dancer has to perform a role in which they have to die do I, do they have to die in a perfect fifth position or in a you know there there's a certain certain sloppiness that might be required or sure. it might add something sure. or uh, Juliet Romeo and Juliet yeah young Juliet 13 years old falls in love for the first time head over heels um, losing control you know she should depict that and not be too precise in everything right. I think that adds to the art and if we you know correct that or maybe it's not even our place at all because I'm a physiotherapist, not a ballet teacher. Right. Um, but if these voices come from one side and the artistic side says something else, um, it will only, you know, cause confusion sure. in, in a performer. Sure. So I loved what you said when we talked, you know, a while ago that you said the only bad movement is the 
the one you're not prepared for. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think we touched upon that a little bit. Yeah, I agree. It comes down to um, that human bodies are so highly um, adaptable. Mm. You know, all tissues respond to the load you put onto them, mm-hmm. the, the, the strain. They typically get stronger, provided that you give them enough time to recover. Um, but every tissue does, from bones to ligaments, from tendons to muscles, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can make your body very resilient that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, you know, by preparing yourself for the surprises, you make yourself more resilient because you cannot avoid that sometimes uh, something bad happens um, and you want to be as ready as possible for that. Sure. So yeah, one might say, let's train to stay in the safe zone. And your safe zone is uh, pretty much in the middle and um, uh, you increase your strength there. Or you could say, let's train out of your safe zone to increase that safe zone. So you have more movement that is safe. And that sort of connects to that that statement. Um, You know, it relates to the individual. Bad movement is only bad if you're not prepared for it. So prepare all movement in a way. Absolutely. And, and, Kind of the way I'm thinking about it too, which I want to circle back around to, is yes, um, it's the it's the movement you're not prepared for. But I think also in terms of choices, which we've been talking about all along, I think bad movement is also ooh, the the one that is too rigid as well. There's only one way to exactly. The same it's thing. like yeah, huh. yeah. There's the, the extremes. Extremists are never good. No, no not I in agree. dance, not in uh, not in politics either. I was going to say that too. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's also good to point out that what most people think or what we traditionally thought is not always true. Um, for example, a deadlift, mm-hmm. lifting uh, quite a heavy weight off the floor, um, should be performed in your safe zone. So you want your spine to be straight, right? Mm -hmm. But um, research has shown that flexion is, um, and flexion meaning rounding your back, um, happens in a a deadlift. Whether you can see it or not, it's happening. There's a certain amount of flexion going on. Um, So we might say, uh, rounding your back is bad, but if you're prepared for it and you always do it like that, there's nothing bad about it. And that you see back in you know the highly skilled lifters that uh, often deadlift with a visibly rounded back. Right. So then, my question is too. Right. If you think about these people who are lifting extreme amounts of weight in deadlift position, and yes, their back is rounded, but the the other thing that I kind of think about as well in my own practice is as soon as they go to lift the weight, they have that flexion in your back, their back, it's visible, but they keep that throughout the entire movement. And again, it kind of goes to this. They, it seems to me that they, 
they understand how to control it. They're prepared for that movement as opposed to rolling up and articulating through their spine, right? Or starting the, the movement with some amount of flexion and then increasing the amount of flexion as they get to the top. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that goes back to movement control again. You know, something else you and I talked about like a while ago on therapeutic interventions to make them feel better, which kind of, we're kind of veering off topic a little bit, but I'm wondering, um, A, what made you think about this in terms of creating good versus bad movement? Um, and then how do you coach dancers to become more independent as opposed to being reliant on therapeutic interventions? Yeah, very good question. As a therapist, your goal um, I believe is always to um, give something to a patient or to dancer um, which they can take control of. Um, and I guess it depends again on the individual, what they are used to, who they are. Um, and in dance, I find there are two types of dancers. Uh, the ones that always do too much and the ones that are a bit too hesitant. Yes. A bit too, too afraid to move. Uh, and they need different approaches. Uh, I must say, though, the, the ones in between I rarely see. I, I get this feeling. But mm. that's also anecdotal. Right, right. Um, so you have to build um, therapeutic alliance through this together. Sure. Um, stupid. They have a good awareness of, of movement. Um, so treat them as your equal, but also be upfront and, you know, educate. Um, and this is very difficult, I find, because people respond differently to, to, to what's, um, what they hear. Yeah, absolutely. And it also very much depends on uh, ideas they've learned in the past. Sure. It's, it's very difficult to change someone's mind just by, by words. Right. Uh, no, I absolutely agree. So I think, you know, that begs a lot of skill on our part to be reading the situation and um, trying to connect with the people in front of us and understand individually where they're coming from. At the same token, we have to realize that we're not everything to everyone. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, I think uh, no clinician can win over everyone. Right. Even if the core of the treatment is exactly the same, or the intention is exactly the same, mm. um, it's about how you wrap it if you actually reach the person uh, across from you. Exactly. Going back to um, independent dancers. Yes. I think um, as a therapist, um, I want to give a dancer some responsibility. Sure. I think the answer to most problems lies within a dancer, and um, I'm not the one that can fix you. I'm only here to guide you um, towards uh, feeling better, performing better. Mm -hmm. um, so if I transfer a bit of responsibility onto the dancer and a bit of understanding of what to do with this responsibility, um, they might come back the next time, ideally, and they will ask, um, I have had this pain or this kind of trouble. Um, what can I do for it myself? 
I think that's a good goal to, good to goal. try and try and reach that. Mm -hmm. um, because in the other the other part is when someone starts to rely on you too much, um, they start to not perform as well if you're not there. They start to, um, you know, not feel as empowered as they could be. Sure. Yeah, I, I see that too. So more so giving them tools in their toolkit to go off and be their own, to be able to take care of themselves, essentially. Exactly. And, you know, if I start keep on emphasizing how bad certain movements are, I'm not giving them those tools. Correct, and you're making them more dependent. Yes. Yeah, good point. Um, Dan, you bring up really excellent points. Is there anything else that you want to chat about regarding all the stuff that I haven't asked you? Um, I'll go a bit back to um, the bad movement. Bad movement is the only, uh, is the only movement you're not prepared for. Mm -hmm. Right, so, uh, so the only bad movement is the one you're not prepared for, and this also comes uh, after an injury. Let's say someone has a a lateral ankle sprain. Someone rolls over their ankle. We need to load that lateral ankle. We shouldn't avoid it. Right. Of course, you want to prevent uh, it from happening, but we cannot always. It will happen. Sometimes uh, stuff happens. Um, so this goes back to adapting. We need to get stronger on the outside of the ankle mm -hmm. because that was the weak point where you injured yourself. Mm -hmm. And this, this is, of course, for someone whose um, life depends on their bodies. Mm -hmm. It's difficult because it hurts. Um, your body is giving you signals that you shouldn't. Um, so language comes into play and not vilifying any movement comes into play. Sure. We can be, we can be uh, I guess, reassure people that, you know, if you can move it, you can control it. Um, we can go there just be in control, even if you feel a little bit. Um, let's see what happens. Absolutely. And then that builds trust and, and, and uh, resilience in the body. Sure. I mean, what's coming up for me too is you also can't go there without touching on some pain science as well, right? Um, and, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Right. And telling them, you know, a little, a little bit of discomfort is okay, right? And at this point, you're your tissues are healed, right? And so, you know, it's okay, or they're on their way to being healed. So it's okay to start stressing. Yeah, I agree. Unfortunately, at this point in our conversation, Dan and I run into some technical issues and my recording equipment fails to record his contact information. So for any of you who would like to get in touch with Dan and continue the conversation, you are welcome to email him at vandenacker.dan at gmail.com. Spelling will be in the show notes. Thank you so much, Dan, for this interesting conversation. On behalf of Ellie and myself, I, Marissa Schaefer, want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Our intro soundscape was composed by the dynamic duo Brendan Berry and Dylan Ezzy, and dancer-designer Katie Dean crafted our visual image. 
To those of you who have made this season possible by contributing to DanceWell, we are infinitely grateful. We wouldn't be where we are without you. Your donations help us to pay for SoundCloud membership, website fees and upgrades, and our recording technology. If you too would like to make a contribution to DanceWell, please follow the link in the description of this podcast to visit our GoFundMe page. We thank you in advance for your support. And lastly, if you like what you hear, we invite you to go to iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud and search DanceWell Podcast to subscribe. You can also view all of our episodes and learn more about this podcast by visiting our website at www.dancewellpodcast.com. If you have questions or want to get in touch, email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye.